Hey everyone, and welcome to the Soil and Green podcast, now with 40% more people. In this podcast, we'll explore climate change topics ranging from the soil microbiome to complex ecological systems. If you have no idea what either of those are, don't worry, we'll explain any heavy concepts. We're not experts either, but we want to use this platform to share what's happening in climate change research right now. Our time at CSU has afforded us the privilege of studying under some great professors who have opened our eyes to some very cool concepts and ideas in soils, ecology, agro ecosystems, climate change, and more. Now we want to pass some of these awesome concepts along to you. Topics and questions that will be covered in this episode include what is the soil microbiome? How do microbes affect greenhouse gas emissions? What is ecosystem engineering and what role do microbes play in it? Soil viruses and fecal matter transplants. At Soil and Green, our goal is to educate the general public to the hypotheses and theories and distinguishing the difference between the two floating around in the climate change research discussion. We want to invite you to listen as we pick the brains of our guests to learn how researchers are trying to provide answers to some of the biggest questions of our fledgling geologic epoch, the Anthropocene. Our very special guest today is the one and only Dr. Kelly Wrighton, Associate Professor of Soil Microbiomes at Colorado State University. She runs the Wrighton Lab on campus, which focuses on, you guessed it, the soil microbiome. What does that mean? Generally, it's the environment that soil microbes inhabit. What are soil microbes, you might ask? Soil microbes can range from bacteria or bugs as they are also known, to microscopic multicellular organisms. The Wrighton Lab is particularly interested in the microbial contribution to ecosystem processes, especially carbon and nitrogen cycling. What the hell does that mean? Well, it really means they track the role that microbes play in breaking down organic matter into soils. No, it's not all organic matter, fun fact. Organic matter usually only makes up a few percent of soils, and getting nutrients to other organisms and ultimately plants as well as the culpability of these little buggers and emitting greenhouse gases. Dun, dun, dun! This really is the most apropos way to kick off this podcast, too, because it allows us to start at the smallest level living organism to be addressed later, present in the soil. And we'll learn that they may not be the smallest living organism living in the soil, but that depends on what you can consider living or not living. We'll talk more about that later. Without further ado, we'd like to welcome Kelly to the program and get started. Hi, Kelly. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks for, for being coming. here. <laughs> my name is Alyssa Hanafi, and I'm a soil and crop science major at Colorado State University. I am Levi Johnson. I'm a soil and crop science major as well at Colorado State University, and I'm concentrating on soil ecology. And welcome to our very first episode of the Soylent Green podcast. Hopefully you get the reference. <laughs> if not, you're fired. Look it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> look it up. <laughs> Noob. <laughs> so Kelly, first, can you tell us a little bit of how you got started studying microbes? That's a great question. So I actually was really passionate about fish and aquariums in high school. So I volunteered at the Seattle Aquarium all through high school. Cool. So I always liked looking into worlds, I think, and looking at how organisms interact in these worlds and how they interact with their environment. And I would just spend hours and hours at Seattle Aquarium just like watching these animals interact. So here's a fun fact about ocean microbes. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, there is a product of a microalgae called Karenia brevis, which lives in our ocean, and it is approved as a medical treatment for strokes and cystic fibrosis. Furthermore, researchers are looking at this chemical as a treatment for cancer. 
And so I knew nothing about microbes and I went to school for a biology degree. And as part of that degree, I took a microbiology course. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is like looking through a microscope at all of these little worlds. And so then I switched my major, as you do in your fifth year, you know, <laughs> went on to have a degree in microbiology. Cool. How did that then move on to studying microbes specifically in soils and agroecosystems? I was really interested in organisms that make a difference. And so I wanted to kind of have this place where microbiology met environmental awareness or made a difference. And I wanted that sense for my research. And so it turns out microbes were the best place to invest my time because there are these little engines that catalyze all these different reactions on this planet. And so, you know, we can harness those engines to do good or harness those engines to understand how they could potentially produce greenhouse gases, as Levi mentioned earlier. And so I really felt like this was a great opportunity to partner environmental knowledge with microorganisms. Here at CSU, students can study fermentation science, where people like us can enjoy special tappings brewed right on site. Microbes are a necessary part of this process as well. What are you and your team working on currently in the lab? Me being part of that team. Yeah, you're, you're part of that team, Levi. I was like, I don't know, Levi, what are we doing in the lab? I haven't been in the lab in 12 years. Uh, as you guys saw by the nerdy papers I had with me at the at the brewery before. We were um, not at a brewery. We were not. We were not. We were at a coffee shop. Exactly. Yes, at the coffee shop. Our lab does a lot of interesting, in my mind, obviously, looking at the role that microbes play in soil systems and how they impact carbon and nitrogen cycles. And so those ramifications can be in understanding these microbes and they how they contribute to methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas, or understanding how these microbes can be used to harness to create nutrients for plants. Microbes that produce methane in anaerobic conditions are called methanogens. Researchers at Stanford are looking into using methanogens as a source of natural gas as a greener approach to renewable energy also something I'm very interested in. Yeah. Can we go into detail about that, actually? Like, how do microbes and greenhouse gas emissions relate? Like, how do they affect one another? Okay. So let's back one step up and talk about what microbes are. So microbes yeah. are these little, little cells, single cells, right? And so we're hundreds and hundreds and billions of cells in our body. These are single-celled organisms. And what they are, is you can think of them, like I said earlier, as these like little engines or these little catalysts. And so they contain basically sacks of enzymes that catalyze different reactions. And what makes soil one of the coolest, if not the coolest ecosystem on this planet, is that it contains billions and billions of these little engines. In fact, a teaspoon of soil can contain between 100 million and 1 billion bacteria strains. And these engines are all doing different types of reactions. And so we throw them all together such that a gram of soil has 25 billion of these little engines. And then they catalyze all these reactions that make this world run. So the reason we can breathe oxygen is because of our microorganisms on this planet. The reason you can process food in your diet is because of the microorganisms in your gut. And so these engines and understanding how they function is vital to kind of plant health. And so to get back to your question, which is how do microorganisms affect plant health and how do they affect greenhouse gases? Those are just byproducts. Like we breathe out, we basically breathe in oxygen and we breathe out CO2. Microorganisms do the same. And so one of the things they breathe out is CO2. One of the things they breathe out is methane. And those are greenhouse gases. They also, in doing that, like we breathe oxygen, they can breathe 
whole bunch of other things. They can breathe nitrates, they can breathe iron, they can bring sulfates. And so what that means is they're basically transforming those compounds in soils to create nutrients for plants. And so that's how these billions of engines, these little tiny invisible engines, catalyze this whole planet that we live in, including our own bodies. About some of those greenhouse gases. So we learned in your class that especially in some of these peat soils, and now that I'm learning some of these wetland soils, they have potential to create quite a bit of greenhouse gases. Is that right? Yeah. So these systems are fascinating because they store a bunch of carbon. So that's a new buzz for a lot of people in ag is how do we use ag systems to store carbon or sequester carbon? Ag stands for agriculture for those that might not know. But these systems have been doing it for the whole existence of these habitats, right? And so the idea is that a bunch of carbon comes into it. In fact, 30% of the carbon on this planet is stored in these saturated soils like wetlands or permafrost, like you allude to. And then as a byproduct of microbial metabolisms in those systems or the microbial engines functioning, we get basically these, these microbes essentially, for lack of a better word, burp out methane as a byproduct of that activity. And so we're really interested in, in how we can keep carbon in soils and keep it stabilized in soils because it's really important to kind of our whole climate health. But also part of this is these bacteria have been doing this and this is what gives us an ozone and this is what gives us a comfortable planet to live in is because we've been reliant on these bacteria to do this job. And so it's kind of this management of carbon in the system through these microbial engines that makes this planet function in a healthy way. So microbes have the ability to store carbon from the atmosphere and help mitigate some of our anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. How do these microbes store carbon? Is it in their actual bodies? Is that where the carbon is being stored or do they have another mechanism that stores the carbon? I wanted to put a brief definition in here of anthropogenic, which refers to processes that are affected by humans. So the Anthropocene is a highly contested and new geologic epoch, which in other words is a name for a very long period of time in terms of rock life. <laughs> the, the Holocene is the period prior to this. The name of the book and film series Jurassic Park is derived from the Jurassic period. And fun fact, most of the dinosaurs in the movie did not live in the Jurassic period rather the Cretaceous period. Yeah, so microbes can control the storage of carbon by two ways. One, they are carbon themselves. Um, so to get to your point, yes, they can fix CO2. They can also accumulate biomass, which is further storing or building carbon in systems. But they can also store carbon in systems by not chomping down the carbon that is in soils. And so what we see in anoxic habitats, which what I mean by that is soils that don't have oxygen because they're filled or saturated with water, carbon stays around for a lot longer than it does in something like arid soils like we have here in Colorado when you go out to the Arctic field site. So the reason why that is, is because the microbes don't have the oxygen to breathe and to really decompose all of that available carbon. And so it's really understanding that how these microbes deal with these changes in oxygen and how that affects their ability to break down that carbon. You'd mentioned earlier ag systems. I know that there's a very big potential for carbon storage there as well. Can you illuminate some more on that subject? I think that's a really important space in the, the idea that what makes ag systems such an tractable system for somebody like me who's who's kind of grown up in wetland soils in these kind of, for lack of a better word, wild systems, is that ag is a managed system. And so we have managed ecosystems. And so we have hosts in the case of our crop plants, and we have 
soils, but these soils aren't like the soils that I'm working in where they're subjected to all of these climatic things that are not kind of controlled. I mean, we're adding known amounts of nitrogen. We're adding known amounts to these systems and, and, and they're censored because we have colleagues in our department who build these sensors and they're modeled because we have colleagues who do these things. And so we can really track the role that these microorganisms are playing in these ecosystems. And that's what makes ag, and that's why I came to Colorado State, such an appealing system for someone like me who's always worked in wild systems, is that we've never had that kind of infrastructure and that desire to manage microbiomes and that infrastructure to manage those microbiomes. And when I say microbiomes, I mean those group of microbial engines in these soils that are catalyzing all these reactions. Bacteria from all four groups perform important services related to water dynamics, nutrient cycling, and disease suppression. A few important bacteria include nitrogen-fixing bacteria, which form symbiotic associations with the roots of legumes like clover and lupine, nitrifying bacteria, which change ammonium to nitrite, denitrifying bacteria, which convert nitrate to nitrogen or nitrous oxide, and, and exitomites, which are a large group of bacteria that grow as hyphae, like fungi. So say that you're working in an ag system that is comprised of a monoculture of one crop, say it's all soybean, all corn, which a lot of our big ag industries grow. Is there a correlation between the quantity and quality of microbes in a monoculture system versus a system that is more biodiverse? Well, I'll tell you what we want to say, and then I'll tell you what I think <laughs> the literature says. Give it to me straight. I'm going to give it to you straight <laughs> because this is not going to be a popular idea. I, I want to believe and what our community would want us to believe because we think about there's this kind of, how do I say it for lack of a better word, this idea that we understand ecological healthy systems and we take that and apply that to ag. And in that idea, the more biological complexity or the more biological diversity we have, we associate that with basically more sustainable, more stable systems. And so I think to answer your question, we all infer that from the data out there. But I will tell you, the field is not at the same rigor because our tools are only just being translated to that system. And so I think only now can we really begin to answer your question. Do the number of microbes change? We could probably estimate that 20 years ago. Do the type, the who's there of those microbial engines, what's their name? Are you a Honda? Are you a Toyota? We could have answered that probably 10 years ago. But do the Honda and the Toyota function the same way? And do we need all of those Hondas and Toyotas and all the other different makes and models? It really comes down to how those microorganisms function as engines and how many unique engines do we have in a soil? We're only now, because it's only at this really ripe period where our techniques and our knowledge of genome sciences has kind of met soil that we can start addressing that question. And I think that's the really the $5 million question that we really want to answer is, is there a relationship between above ground diversity and below ground function? function and functional stability. And I think that we're just starting, I mean, just in the last year or two, as you guys know from my class, those papers are just starting to come out. Sounds like someone needs to research that a bit and get some answers. <laughs> yeah. I'll get right on that. See you guys yeah. later. Yeah. There's a USDA grant due in August, just in case you're listening from managers. <laughs> so I kind of want to go back to what you were just saying and kind of explain more for our listeners who might not know, what is the process of identifying microbes? Who is there, the Honda, the Toyota? And then when you say the genome, what do you mean? Are we sequencing their DNA and maybe explain what is on the future or on the horizon for soil microbiology? 
Yeah. Let's start with Gino. So I think because of 23andMe or because you can send in your dog and feel like and get an answer back of what kind of, you know, mutt you have. We think that we as a society are more comfortable with the idea of what a genome is. And a genome is the collection kind of of our DNA, our DNA makeup. And in that DNA, we encode hundreds and thousands of genes. Those genes are, for lack of a better word, those parts, that part list for the car. And so what those genes tell us as microbiologists or even in your own body is the reactions that our cells can catalyze. And so a genome, we can look at a genome and it can give us a metabolic blueprint of the reactions that that engine, that genome, that organism is catalyzing. And so when we do this in soils, we can have hundreds of thousands of genomes and we can look at what that metabolic repertoire, what those reactions are that those genomes are catalyzing. And so it's a really powerful tool to ask those kinds of questions that we're trying to address, which is how does the function of the soils as it's provided by the microorganisms change in response to ag management practices or other amendments that we do in agricultural systems? So essentially, scientists know which microbes are present, but we're still trying to figure out what exactly they do. Yeah, even our best studied microorganism, which is not my favorite because I don't like the poster childs, but the poster child, <laughs> underdog. right? That we're, yeah, I, I root <laughs> for the underdogs. I work in soils. So the, the poster child, right, of all of microbiology is E. coli. I think we're all familiar with the name E. coli. We hear pe about people going to Jack and Box and eating burgers and getting <laughs> an E. coli infection, right? But it turns out that it's also the workhorse in the lab. And so even with E. coli, when we take E. coli genome that we've been studying since the 19, you know, it was probably one of the first genomes inventoried. And we've been studying this organism for, you know, 70 years. We know about 50% of what that machine of E. coli can do. E. coli was actually first described by a German scientist, Theodor Escherich, in 1885. So in fact, this knowledge has been around for 136 years to be exact. So when we read the genome, we can only really annotate, which is when we can assign a function to a, a gene, 50% of that genome. And so now you can imagine that we step into soils and we have all these machines that sort of look like a Honda, sort of look like a Toyota, but don't really look like a Honda or Toyota. And now we're trying to infer what they're doing. And so we're always taking kind of this leap when we're in, in soils about what these microorganisms are doing. And that's what we call this kind of dark matter. We know it's there. We know it catalyzes important reactions, but we don't really know how to infer everything that it does today. And I think that's what makes our field such an exciting frontier in the next 10 years where we really want to go. What are some of your favorite, I guess, if you will, reactions that do happen? Like, what are some of the most important ones that do happen in, in soils or just within the microbiome in general? Well, yeah, you're going to hear my bias. I mean, you guys probably know it from the class. <laughs> I mean, I love methanogens. So I love methanogens <laughs> because one, I mean, we're talking about even in a soil microbial community, these are like rare, right? We don't see them easily. But yet when we talk about having global implications, these organisms have a huge effect on, on our planet. And so I like them for that reason. I also like them because they're really difficult to grow. And so no one grows them. And so knowing how to grow them is like a special club. And I like to be part of special clubs. Growing a bonsai tree or exactly, something. Exactly, yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, I can't. I got the chops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's like a special group of us and we all trade secrets, but we don't really let outsiders in. But they also like them because these organisms, while they live in these soils that have all this input of plant biomass and all this kind of complex carbon, they live off a really specialized diet. And so they're reliant on their upstream neighbors to kind of feed them. And so they 
they're not going to be just the only ones in a community. Rare, or rarely are they going to be. They're never going to be in soils. And they exist because everything else produces all these waste products and they kind of live on these specialized waste products. So in order to understand methanogens, you need to understand the ecosystem of microbial communities. And that's why I think that they're the coolest bugs on this planet. But microbes have a special ability to adapt to changing environmental conditions, right? So could you maybe give an example of how a microbe changes to, say, like drought or hotter temperature? And what are the mechanisms that cause it? I mean, it's not about cockroaches, people. It's about microbes. Like, right, if we want to talk about the world changing, we're not talking about cockroaches. We're talking about microorganisms. I mean, you can go to Yellowstone Hot Spring and see these huge growths of these beautiful colors that are growing in like pH 5 and it's 115 degrees. And that's because these microorganisms have all of this capacity to deal with and respond to kind of the extremes of life. Actually, researchers at Montana State University are studying microbes that live in these hot springs at Yellowstone. These little guys are thermophilic, meaning that they thrive in really hot temperatures. Some of these microbes have special enzymes that convert biomass into sugar, and the hope is that these mechanisms can be utilized in industrial-scale production of biofuels. And so, I mean, any kind of environment on this planet that you can name from a pH of 2 to a pH of 10 to temperatures that none of us could sustain, there's microbial life there. We're talking about radiation. You know, when you go back to Chernobyl, you look at the trees and they're, they're, there's microbial growth. It's the first thing that responds. Scientists recently discovered a strain of fungi that feeds off radiation in Chernobyl. Turns out that this fungi may be beneficial for humans, particularly astronauts. The fungi contains high levels of melanin, a pigment that turns skin darker. That melanin absorbs the radiation and turns it to chemical energy, similar to how plants turn carbon dioxide and chlorophyll into oxygen and glucose. According to this study, published in 2000. 2007, melanin is an intriguing property that can be used against radiation in space. NASA scientists are looking into the possibility of extracting melanin from this fungi as a cost-effective way of producing space-approved sunscreen. These are the true survivors. They have all different mechanisms. There's no one mechanism, but basically that their mode of operandi is to survive. And because there's such a huge diversity in all of these like engine functions, because they can swap out these different parts, they can adapt to many different kind of environmental extremes that we as humans or even our cockroaches can't survive. The only other cool animal I'd put on there is a tardigrade. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, I put them. Yeah, I mean, those are like the water. Yeah, they're they're pretty awesome. For anyone who doesn't know what a tardigrade is, I will post a picture on our Instagram for you. And you can look at how cute it is. There are pictures (laughs) on my office wall. They're my my spirit animal. (laughs) (laughs) They are adorable. That'll explain Kelly a lot. (laughs) I just wanted to preface this question I'm about to ask about ecosystem engineering with a quick example of what that is. One of the most famous examples are beavers on the macroscopic level because they change their environment so drastically and has such a large effect on, well, the ecosystem itself and other organisms that live within it. And bacteria can do the same thing in the way that Alyssa alluded to earlier. They can fix nitrogen from the atmosphere. They can also change ammonium to nitrite, nitrate to nitrous oxide. And they're involved in the process of creating methanogens or, or methane. It's known as methanogenesis. 
let's talk a little bit about ecosystem engineering. What role might microbes play in that? Right. And so ecosystem is a broad term. And so when we say ecosystem, we can be talking about our guts. We can be talking about the soils under plants. We can be talking about all these different environments. And what we're talking about when we say ecosystem engineering is actually, especially when we talk about microbiome engineering, is actually using our knowledge of these engines to then control these engines for a desired outcome. And so in soils, you know, we want to optimize, especially in ag systems, we want to optimize plant biomass and plant health. So how do we feed or sustain the microorganisms in these systems such that we can support our crops? But even in our own bodies, right? I mean, people take probiotics. You go on antibiotics and your doctor suggests you take probiotics. You know, they're talking to you about maintaining your ecosystem health and your ecosystem functions. And so you're even doing this, you know, we're doing this all the time in our own bodies. Literally just listened to a podcast about this today. <laughs> that ologies episode. You <laughs> yeah, apparently for strengthening your gut microbiome, you can get a fecal transplant of a donor who can then provide you with those necessary microbes to help you digest I, your food. I have a funny story about that. So <laughs> I, I do a lot of work in wetlands and I always have to, I go out to these sites and I do brown bag seminars. And usually people who come to my brown bag seminars at a wetland site are, you know, 70 plus retirees who's into birding. But anyways, they, they come and then somehow or another, we always, FMT is the lingo, so fecal microbiome transplant. And basically it's these shakes or pills you can take to reconstitute a healthy ecosystem from a donor that ideally has a healthy fecal microbiome. And so, I mean, we, we're, we're, we're like out of soils in five minutes and we're talking about <laughs> FMT for the whole well, rest of the time. Well, if you're not into getting into science, maybe that's another career option for you. <laughs> well, you know, it's all, it's all the same philosophy, right? Is that microbes are catalysts. And if we understand more about what our microbes do, we can use them for any sort of function. So how are we using microbes, say, in agricultural systems at this time? And where do you see it going in the future? Or heck, even like carbon sequestration or other systems like that. Yeah. So I think one of the kind of oldest model cases is, you know, in, in kind of these nitrogen fixing bacteria. I mean, that's one I think that a lot of people are comfortable with. And, and the reason why is what I'm talking about is these microorganisms actually form, I mean, in many cases, tumors on the plants because they are in such close association with the crops. And what they're doing is they're essentially fixing nitrogen. They're providing the plants with the, the nitrogen they need from the air that we breathe. And so it's a, it's a really powerful because it means we do not have to supplement these systems with a bunch of exogenous or external nitrogen. We can let our microorganisms capture the nitrogen that's in the air that we breathe and transform that and give it straight into the plant. And so I, I mean, that is where I would start as for sort of like a basal level and the value of microorganisms. But you could extend that to a lot of other different reactions. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because I think that's an important distinction to make is that it's not the plants themselves that are fixing the nitrogen. It's their microbial associations. Right. And it's just in your gut. You're not your cells are not breaking down that lettuce. It's your microorganisms that are, are breaking just down your host. lettuce. <laughs> yeah, you are just maintaining that ecosystem. <laughs> hopefully to its healthiest level so that it can do its job. Yes, definitely the healthiest. <laughs> yes, I'm sure, Levi. So the plants have this mutually beneficial relationship with these nitrogen-fixing bacteria where the bacteria fixes the nitrogen for the plants to make it bioavailable. And what do the plants give to the bacteria? So they have a trade-off in the sense that they have to kind of feed these microorganisms to make it worth keeping these microorganisms around from the microorganisms' perspective. And so they leach off organic carbon that's a waste for them in some senses. And so depending on <laughs> depending on the balance, but let's simplify the situation and say that they're feeding the bacteria with carbon and the bacteria are giving the plants the limiting nutrient of nitrogen. 
That's so nice. <laughs> That's how Sweet nature should operate. But right, you know? it's, it's so like, I always want to teach it that it's like this beneficial, symbiotic kumbaya. <laughs> yeah. But right, you also know in this class, we talk that this relationship is on a kind of a, a knife's edge, right? And depending on the resources and the environment that, you know, these, these organisms are really out for themselves in the end and are always making decisions on where to trade or when to trade or how much to trade um, based on the surrounding environment. If times get tough, they will stab you in the back. <laughs> exactly. So, you, yeah, kumbaya to a point. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and it's the same thing your body, right? Exactly. So let me ask you more about your position as a research microbiologist. What do you do in your research as your role as a principal investigator? I read it on your website. <laughs> well, besides answer emails? No, just kidding. So I think the, the best part of my job is the creativity that I get to have. I mean, I anything that I can get funded, I can do. And so I've studied how moose and ruminants in the Arctic are going to respond to climate shifts and changing in the plant biochemistry through their microbiome. So can, you know, moose microbiomes buffer climate change? Cool. I, I've studied, you know, methanogens and different soils all across this globe. And so I love that I have this kind of intellectual freedom and if I can get it funded, I can do it. And I think that that's what keeps me going. I mean, it's always this sense of discovery and trying to kind of link things or see patterns that maybe other people haven't seen. You can convince your own community that it's worthwhile for going after. And so that's the the kind of my job is to do that, to have this vision. But then it's also to, you know, train undergrads and to kind of learn and expose them to the resources and the ways that I think. And then it's also to train my graduate students so that they become the next generation and my postdocs of scientists who are making a difference on this planet. Yeah, that kind of reminds me as we were kind of talking earlier at the coffee shop that a lot of people think science is a lot of quantitative numbers and crunching numbers and sitting in a lab. But as a researcher, you're allowed to follow your curiosity, which I think is, is really cool. Yeah, I mean, it has to be led from a place of passion. And I also think, and it's probably true for all science, but it's especially true in my world. My world's invisible, right? And so in order to be a good scientist, a good microbiologist, you have to have like some visual skills in your head that you can take this invisible world and recreate it and see it. And then you can think about how you can manipulate it and change it. And so I actually think a lot of people who come to my lab and who thrive in my lab are, are very artistic in the sense that they have a kind of a visual mind that they're imagining this whole ecosystem and this whole city that exists but it's invisible. And so those skills also translate to being a great scientist because how we communicate science and how we show our science through figures, that's all illustrative. And so how, I mean, don't undersell the value of color schemes and creating messages and telling sexy stories, right? I mean, that is all part of this brand that is, you know, enterprise science, so to speak. When we were in Kelly's class, she had us do a lot of presentations uh, either by ourselves or in groups. And she always referred to making our titles and images, quote unquote, sexy. And that had... Giggity. <laughs> had a lot to do with just making them more relatable and accessible to people rather than just having some boring title doesn't really tell you much. Science is sexy. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I actually think that at least in our lab, you know, we have a lot of folks who are really creative and super and have a lot of hobbies related to artistic endeavors and then are also scientists and also great illustrators. We've got a lot of great illustrators <laughs> in my group. Yeah, whatever your skill or passion is, I think that there's a place for you in science because basically 
basically you're just propelling your understanding of the world around you. And I will say like undergrad degrees in science, like we talked about at the coffee shop, <laughs> can be challenging because they don't always expose you to that part of science. But if you can get, you know, through the first couple of years, and you guys can vouch for this, you guys are in, you know, parts of your end of your career. You can get through it. Yeah. The science actually becomes this place where you can see, you know, your professor's passion and you can see all this creativity and you can see this um, kind of motivation to make the world around you better through your knowledge. And so that's why, I mean, I, I love being a scientist, but I also feel like it satisfies all these kind of aspects of my my soul too. Speaking of understanding the world around you, do you ever think about your personal contact with microbes? Say like, do you ever get weirded out when you're touching a door handle or shaking someone's hands about what microbes are crawling onto your skin at that point? <laughs> no, I, I don't, but... Um, <laughs> Maybe that's just me. <laughs> no, but I, I do. Well, I think I showed you guys this the first part of class, right? It's like people's cell phones, right? You put that against your face and your, you know, your oil glands on your face. You, you want to know the dirtiest thing you probably have around you. It's your cell phone. So <laughs> if, you, if anyone's listening to this, you can go wash your cell phone now and thank me. Yeah. But I will say, and maybe sponges, you yeah. know, that, that wet sponge that's been sitting on your sink for like two weeks. It's kind of smells. Yeah. You might want to <laughs> clean it. But other than that, I don't think about it because I have a healthy ecosystem and I know my microbes, part of my microbes job is to protect me from invading microbes because they're healthy and established. And so I think the only time you really have to worry about that is if you're immunocompromised or you're, you know, you're on, you know, immunocompromising medicines or these things. I mean, those and those are all, you know, realities for many of us in our lives. But other than that, I, it's not something I think about often. So I found a study where researchers conducted, investigated where the microbial hotspots occur in the household and the kitchen was that of the most microbially diverse. In fact, the kitchen sponge was the most contaminated item in the household, followed only by your toothbrush holder. Mm, microbial toothpaste. While we're on that subject, can we talk about soil viruses for a minute? Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, actually, to be controversial, Levi, you said that microorganisms were the smallest living things in soil. No, I was wrong. Do you want to have an opportunity to change what you said in the intro? I, we could do it in We post. can put a little, a little asterisk, a little asterisk. As I'll say with most things, we can do it in post-production. 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 Yeah, so I've just told you that all these micro microbial engines, these invisible organisms are really important to catalyzing everything down to the air that we breathe and the plants that we eat. But just like us with COVID, these microorganisms also have viruses that are specific for them. And so there's this whole other level of invisible world in which these microorganisms are preyed upon by these viruses that are like COVID that are RNA based or DNA based, and they basically target and predate on these microorganisms. So in a study recently published in the Journal of the International Society, for Microbial Ecology, scientists discovered a novel mechanism of viral transport by bacteria shuttle, which traveled down the fungal hyphae highway. Bacteria thereby benefit from taking along viruses to conquest new habitats. There are up to 1 billion viruses in just one gram of soil. However, little is known about their influence on the nutrient and carbon cycles of the soil ecosystem. Fungi are always in search of water and nutrients, so to do this, they form hyphae, long, thin, threads that run through the soil as a widely branched network. Fungi are thus able to bridge dry and nutrient-poor zones, and the bacteria use this highway to invade other areas as well. 
And so they have a huge role in controlling the functions and which organisms and which engines and all of these things are in soils. They very much seem to remember that they had a way of combating that. And I think it was through withholding certain nutrients from these viruses. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, there's a lots of different ways, right? So it's this kind of warfare system that these organisms live in, right? A virus, just like we've seen in the pandemic, a virus evolves and then the host responds and the virus evolves and the host responds. And so just like it has happened to us with all these different strains, the same thing is happening in our microbial ecosystems. And so we see that all the time and we can, the cool thing about our level of resolution is that we can sample all of these with their DNA and their genomes and we can kind of track those over time to understand this warfare and, and, and how they you know, rage against the microbes and the microbes fight back. So just again, to clarify for some people who may not be familiar, you can essentially track viruses that invaded bacteria by looking into their genome because viruses encode themselves in the bacteria. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So not this is this is only one strategy that microbes have. So it's essentially what we call a microbial immune system. And so just like our immune cells recognize a foreign invader and then are primed, right? The whole reason we get vaccines microbes essentially do that same thing. And so they take a snapshot of that virus and they insert it in his genome. And so the next time they see a fragment, they can say, hey, I've seen you. You're you're foreign. I must attack and degrade you. And so it, it's just basically a priming. It's like a vaccine for, but microorganisms create it for themselves. And that's one of many strategies that these organisms have for trying to resist um, viral predation. How, how do they create that themselves? That just seems fascinating. I'm sure there's not like a hard and fast answer. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there is probably a hard, fast answer, but I don't know if, we, if our listeners want to go as, <laughs> into <laughs> molecular biology 101. <laughs> we'll leave some links at the end of this episode. Yeah, you, yeah, you can provide a link to CRISPRs and how they're used for defense. Yeah, maybe another episode. So I kind of want to talk more about soil viruses. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I should have had Josue come. <laughs> yeah, we want to interview Josue. So oh, yeah. tell him okay. to reach out to us. So I think it's well known that, you know, the polar ice caps are melting because of increasing global temperature. And this is releasing new, well, not new, I guess, ancient bacteria and microbes coming out of dormancy, I guess. Do you think that there's a chance that there could be any viruses, novel viruses that will be woken up, say, as the planet keeps on warming? Yes. But will I think those novel viruses will impact us as humans? No. I mean, these viruses are targeting their host range. They're kind of the, the, their prey, so to speak, is, is microbial single cells. And so, yes, I do think that could happen, but I think we should be more concerned about the fact that we have this thaw happening in our polar regions and all that locked up carbon that we've taken for granted and been stored in those systems and we've been so proud of is now kind of heating up. It is now like that frozen turkey you have at Thanksgiving that is so unappetizing on November 20th, but it's suddenly delicious when it's been cooked to at November 24th. And that's what's happening to carbon in these systems as we've relied on them being stored there and taken that for granted as an insurance policy. And what's now happening is that they are heating up and they are warming. And so that stored carbon is now available and those microbes, as you say, are waking up. And now we have the opportunity to kind of, we, not the microbial <laughs> organisms, I sometimes do that, <laughs> have the opportunity to access that carbon and produce methane and produce CO2 in places where we thought these kind of were stable and locked up. And so I think that's the vulnerability that we really need to consider on this planet is what are the microbes going to do and what are they going to do with the carbon now that it looks like a cooked turkey? Aw. <laughs> Chow down. <laughs> exactly. Feel like we do after dinner. 
What's the favorite part of your job? Your favorite part of your job. <laughs> it changes. So, and it evolves, right? Because, I mean, that's the coolest thing about this job. And I think I, I kind of alluded to this earlier is that you get this job because you're re- you're good at doing science. And, and maybe you've had mentors along the way that have taught you how to work with people to some extent. But then you get in this job and your job is now to train people and to motivate people and to inspire people and to write for money and then tell people how you're using your money. And so all of your duties in your job are not actually what you've been trained to do. And so everything on this job is like learn by doing or learn by messing up. And so Sometimes my favorite the best way to learn. So. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I actually do think that that is true. Um, but my favorite part of my job is I do love grant writing because that's where I get to really create. But I also like the storytelling part. And I love when students get big discoveries on their own. So that's that's really exciting. I mean, to watch a student, you know, essentially go to Mars and have this, you know, be the first person to see this, this data and the first person who they've had all these ideas about how something worked and then they get to be the first one and just that kind of discovery is priceless and feel free not to answer us if you don't want to but what's your least favorite part emails (laughs) (laughs) my calendar no my least favorite part is managing my outlook calendar Maybe I'll, yeah, I told you guys I want to create a robot. She's a very busy woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's not that I'm very busy. I just don't spend time in in errands in that part of my world. <laughs> so for anyone listening who is kind of intrigued about the subject that we're talking about, what steps should they take in order to learn more about microbiology, agroecosystems, soil health? Where should they turn to? I wanted to give a brief definition here of what agroecosystems are. Essentially, it's like the smallest unit in agroecology. It's just describing the landscape of an agricultural system and the interactions that happen within the agricultural system. So like the plants that interact with each other or the insects or rodents or birds, anything like that that interacts with the system. I think the earlier you can engage and create experience, and this comes back to, it's great that you have a 3.95 GPA or all of those things, but really what I look for when I'm looking for a scientist is, you know, do you have experience? Do you have curiosity? And so... I volunteered at the Seattle Aquarium for four years. I washed dishes in college just to be around the lab. And so I think it's okay. You all have to start somewhere, but just getting exposure to a community. I mean, there's a lot of local farms in this area that are always looking for people. You know, if you're really motivated by agroecosystems, there's a lot of ways you can volunteer, acquire positions. And if you're at CSU, reach out to faculty. I think it's a, a shame that more students don't, undergrads, you know, there's this kind of barrier sometimes between undergrads and their professors, but they, they don't reach out and take advantage of their time to learn from their professors or reach out to their professors to get understand their networks and understand who they know so that they can help them. Because all of us are here because we believe in training the next generation. I can also attest to that as in my first couple of years here, I didn't really reach out to anybody, but finally got in touch with the, one of my professors, Dr. Stephen Fonte. He works in agroecosystems ecology, and I was just processing soil samples there. And then after that last semester, I am now working in Kelly's lab, doing something similar, except focusing on methanogens in Louisiana wetlands. Yeah. And I think that, you know, all of us, that's, we all started too in some place. And so we recognize that we all have to start somewhere. And so just trying to engage in in your community, whatever that is, or build your own new community. That's what I would suggest is, is have a passion and recognize that you might not be doing your dream job right now, but you're still like learning how the world works in that system. And, And half the time learning what doesn't work for you or you don't like, 
is really important early in your career. Um, I mean, I had a lot of those myself on my way here. And so I, I think those are just as important, if not more important than than all the successes. I can attest to that too. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's about the journey, not yeah, the destination. Exactly. And so, yeah, I think get involved in your community, create a community, uh, be curious. Would this um, be a good time to plug CSU's microbiome network? Oh, yeah. Kelly? Yeah, we do have. I mean, so the reason one of the reasons I came here, as you guys probably know, is that I thought what CSU did in terms of their microbiome network on this campus was really innovative. And so what CSU did that was different is that most microbiome scientists were housed in a microbiology department. But what CSU said is actually what we're going to do is we're going to have other departments write for microbiome scientists in their department. So we're going to house you not all together with microbiome scientists and microbiologists, but we're going to house some of you there, but we're going to house the rest of you around campus. And so our department, soil and crop kind of wrote that, you know, they would benefit from this hire and they made a case. And so the university hired kind of essentially five of me and placed us around. So there's some of us in engineering. There's one of us in English. There's some of us in ecosystem science. (laughs) Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah. She does fantastic work on the the rhetoric of microbiome science. And as you guys know, we we talk about like the hype and the kind of the misuse of acronyms and metaphors. And she'll probably be twinging because I probably used a bunch of those with engines. She probably doesn't like engines. (laughs) But yeah, no, she, Erica gives a tremendous amount of value to our program, but we have a a lot of different equivalents of me in different programs. And I will say that ag invested. So there's a equivalent of me in animal science, Jessica Metcalf, Pankaj Trivedi is in ag bio. And then there's myself and he's a plant microbiome and there's me in soil microbiome. So ag is really well represented in kind of microbiome science on campus, but many other departments are as well. And the, the CSU's microbiome network also does public talks and lectures, right? That the community can also mm-hmm. attend. So yeah, we have one coming up. Uh, well, it's sold out now because of COVID. We're limited in space. <laughs> Did you get tickets? <laughs> yes. Good. It's so awesome. So we bring in big speakers who want to come because we have a kind of a consensus here of microbiome scientists. And then it's really for undergrads and graduate students and postdocs to network. And so all the faculty come and it's really a celebration. You know, we meet at New Belgium the night before, and then we have an all day symposium with talks and kind of celebration of microbiome science. And it's not only CSU, so we have our colleagues from CU Boulder, from School of Mines. New Belgium's Coffee Cafe, Co- right? Ca- yes, yes. <laughs> yes, non-alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about microbiology, that could be a good place to check yeah, as well. Different avenues here. I, I didn't even realize. That's really awesome. Yeah, we have a really um, active community. And I, and I think that's what's great is because our students, I mean, we actually have a designated emphasis in for grad students. So you can be a soil and crop PhD student, but then have a emphasis in microbiome data science. And I think that's the best of all worlds, right? So that you're trained in an ecosystem, but then you're also showing that you have specialized training in this field as well. And sometimes there's free food. There's always free food. <laughs> always free food. <laughs> always free food. <laughs> we, we understand the currency that works on a college <laughs> campus. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kelly, for joining us. It's always fun to talk to you. Thanks, guys, for having me. I'm so happy to be the inaugural guest. This You're great. a great we guest. really appreciate yeah. it. This is amazing. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll peer pressure the rest of the faculty. Please do. <laughs> yeah. Come have fun with us. We're fun. Yes, back. it's easy. And uh, you have coffee before. Coffee yes. before. Do you maybe want to give a shout out to where people can find you on Twitter or your website yeah. in case they're interested in learning more about your work? Yeah, so we're on Twitter. It's the Wrighton Lab. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter, Casey Wrighton, but I don't post as often as 
my lab does, and they post much more interesting things. And then we also have a lab webpage, which is the Wrighton Lab, W-R-I-G-H-T-O-N. Yeah, I think that if you come through Soil and Crop, we're often in, in, you know, in the building, in and around, so you'll see a lot of us around. Thank come learn so about much. bugs. Bugs <laughs> and their viruses. Yeah. The real powerhouse of the world, not, yes. not mitochondria. Yeah, let's not let's not talk about this. Okay, good. Oh, wait a minute. Real quick. I do remember Hostways talking viruses. Are they alive? Well, this is what I was going to say. I was going to, I was giving you an out. I like lobbed that to you. Sorry. Are they biological entities? I just saw it sitting in the corner. Yes, so. I know. You just, you Levi was asleep for the past 30 minutes. Swing and a miss. I got too excited earlier and missed the layup Kelly was trying to serve. She turned around and I had walked off the court. But we'll hear next time about soil viruses. Yeah. So to be determined, you have to have Josue. He can debate this well, one yeah, with we'll you for hours. All right. Yeah. We'll get Josue to tell us, are viruses living or not? Thanks, guys. It was fun. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. Well, there you have it, everyone. Soil microbes. Honestly, we could have done another hour or two on this episode, but we'll save it for another time. I got confirmation that we're going to do an episode about soil viruses. So all you soil nerds, us included, will have to wait for that. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to learn more about Kelly's work, check out the Wrighton Lab at WrightonLab.com or see what they're saying on Twitter at the Wrighton Lab. Also, you can find Soylent Green on Instagram at Soylent Green Podcast, or please feel free to reach out to us us via email. Our email address is soilentgreenpodcast at gmail.com. We will list this in the show notes. Thank you to CSU Soil and Crop Department for funding this endeavor. And thank you to podcast director Marie Tanksley for recording and editing our shenanigans. She's the best. We have a lot of fun doing this and I love being able to share this information with you all. Until next time, this is Levi and Alyssa. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>